Artificial intelligence, or AI, is rapidly changing the world as we know it. The question is how we can be winners rather than losers. Our guest on this episode of the League of Visionaries podcast is the perfect person to answer that question. He wrote the book on artificial intelligence. Literally. His 20th book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to AI, a handbook for all, documents his observations from extensive research and travel, focusing on emerging technologies and specifically artificial intelligence. He is an award-winning journalist and author, an analyst and technology commentator, founder of an in-demand technology consultancy and a professional speaker. He is an honorary fellow of the Institute of IT Professionals of South Africa and has been inducted into the Professional Speakers Association of Southern Africa's Speakers and Educators Halls of Fame. Arthur Goldstuck is one of the speakers at the PSASA Convention 2024 and our guest on this episode of the League of Visionaries podcast. Welcome to the League of Visionaries podcast, where we meet experts, entrepreneurs, and enthusiasts with a visionary message to share. This podcast is brought to you by Yazi Media Virtual Media House. Yazi Media is a proud media partner of the PSASA Convention 2024. We dedicate this second season of the podcast to the speakers and other visionaries behind this premier event for the speaking community. I'm your host, Marie LaRue, and this is the League of Visionaries podcast. Arthur Goldstuck, you are the genuine article in a time when so many people have started to call themselves AI experts overnight. You've been in the game for a long, long time and really leading the guard uh, as far as artificial intelligence, but also technology and the future at large is concerned. Welcome to the League of Visionaries podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's great to be chatting with you. And Arthur, it's an exciting time because we're looking towards your book launch of The Hitchhiker's Guide to AI, a handbook for all that is there to democratize artificial intelligence. But you have a visionary message that is wider than that. Would you like to put that in a nutshell for, for our listeners, the speakers, the authors, the experts who have a visionary message of their own to share? Well, the interesting thing about this book is that much of its genesis comes from having been presenting to various chapters of the Professional Speakers Association and its international affiliates on how AI is available to speakers in particular and is a tool for any speaker to leverage in many different ways. But this is going back several years already that I've been talking about it. So it's not generative AI that suddenly made AI relevant uh, for all. AI has been evolving for the past decade. It's been building for half a century or more, but in terms of the current shape and face of AI, it's about a 10-year uh, journey uh, that it's been on. 
And I've been very fortunate to share part of that journey and therefore to be able to almost take uh, readers and listeners along on a hitchhiker's guide. That's why it's called the hitchhiker's guide. Not only because my first big IT book was the hitchhiker's guide to the internet, but in this case, it is just the most appropriate metaphor for how uh, the book was conceived and how I shared with the users. I should rather say the readers rather than the users. When you say used to thinking of users in the computer world. That is true, right? In in the tech world, we're we're all users, and I suppose we're audio users, we're book users, and uh, yeah, as readers, you are really opening this up, and that's what you did. I'm so glad you mentioned the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Internet because that was how I really found you. And you you had an interesting career starting in Tromsberg in the Free State as a, an early beginning, and I'm just mentioning that because of the sound of Tromsberg being such an exciting one for our international listeners. But you then went through to journalism, and you had a really interesting focus. You were collecting urban legends and sharing them in your journal pieces and in your early publications and then you brought out in the mid-90s the hitchhiker's guide to the internet the south african handbook and that was how i discovered you and i kind of had to decide am i going to eat this week or am i going to i was a student <laughs> am i going to get your book i chose your book and i haven't looked back it was before i even had access to a computer and your book opened up the internet for me because I'm one of the nerds who needs to read about it before I go try it. And uh, I, I think your new book has the kind of power that can bring people in in that way as well. But just to make sure we've got all our passengers on board here, a part of democratizing artificial intelligence and making it open to everybody and empowering for everybody is making sure that people understand what it is. In your recent presentation, uh, I know that you said you're banishing the S word, scary. You're telling people to go for the E word rather. Uh, let's do that first with a definition. How would you introduce artificial intelligence to people who are still just going, whoa, the world's moving too fast for me? There are many definitions and there are many arguments about uh, the, the definitions and it changes all the time. And when people ask me off the cuff, I can't actually answer the question. <laughs> because but there are so I many. To, <laughs> yeah, I will try to answer it for you. It's the ability of computers through any interface, whether it's a smartphone, a computer or a screen you talk to in a bank to be able to present you with information in an automated fashion that is more than just what you would pull out of a knowledge base. And then to enable you to do something with that information. I know that sounds very vague. I'm trying to use ordinary language to describe a highly technical and complex arena. But essentially any process that can be uh, automated and that can join together uh, various functions and actions that then assist one in either um, utilizing it to make a decision for yourself or to enable the machine to do it for you. Generally speaking, that encompasses artificial intelligence. But a lot of what we think is artificial intelligence is really just automation. And in many cases, it's just a script. But in effect, 
artificial intelligence is a script on steroids. So when I say script, I'm talking about, for example, in AI, the key component is the algorithm. And the algorithm is really a recipe or a set of instructions for how something uh, must take place. And that, in effect, is a script. So a script that runs itself, you could say, is AI. Mm, and that's where things start getting scary. But you reassure people and say, if you're using a smartphone, you actually are using AI already because there are so many applications that use it. Could you give, give us a couple of examples of like what we're already using? We don't even know that we're actually already using AI, even if we're thinking it's out there and it's for other people. That's one of the great secrets of AI is that we all are already using it and it has already transformed our lives. So when people hear about what AI can do, and when I give them talks on it, I always say to them in advance, I say, uh, first, some housekeeping. Firstly, the S word is banned, as you alluded to earlier, and the S word is the word scary. Yeah, of course, it can be scary. The highway is scary. It's scary to go out on the roads with all those trucks and all those uh, people driving without licenses or without any consent for other drivers. That is uh, scary. Mm -hmm. AI is is a, is a picnic compared to going out on a highway. So uh, you still got to go on the highway because mm -hmm. you have to get somewhere. And that's the utility um, of the highway, firstly. But secondly, by being able to go somewhere uh, in a car, you can achieve a lot more with your life. And you're not going to forego uh, what you can do with your life because you're scared of the highway. So the same should apply to AI. AI, in a way, is a highway. And if you're scared of that highway, you're going to forego tremendous opportunity in your life, in your work, in your experience of the world. So I say to people, you must embrace AI. You must let AI be your tool, be your companion, your assistant, whatever you want it to be. But AI empowers us. It's uh, far less scary than getting in a car on a highway. Absolutely. And you're still going to buckle up your seatbelt just to take the analogy further. And we'll get to dodging the dangers um, very soon. But that's a very empowering analogy because it can take us so much further. And, and that's definitely part of the appeal, especially now. I think many people who are sitting on the sidelines are realizing if we do not embrace AI, we are losing not only a competitive advantage, just even the chance to compete, um, the possibilities for doing more are tremendous. Um, and, and that applies to many, many fields. But perhaps... There's no question. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, there are so many ways in which we use this. Now, you've given us a very um, usable, friendly and open definition that's quite an umbrella. But there are some interesting new emerging areas where more and more people suddenly have access to what they know is openly generative AI. With ChatGPT, there were still a few barriers to entry. Um, Google started opening up uh, Bard, which uh, is a maybe a little bit more open to more people. And then over the past few weeks, Microsoft really went big with Copilot, which is a lovely way to express that partnership that you're still the pilot, but Copilot is here to help you leveraging ChatGPT or GPT-4 and, uh, and of course, DALI image creation. And all of these things 
Um, what are some of the areas where you see professionals, especially speakers and authors, making use of generative artificial intelligence? One of the demonstrations I've been giving in my uh, talks to speakers over the last few years, but also to more general audiences, I've adapted it for them. But it started with speakers showing how much AI is built into PowerPoint, for example. And a lot of it is not so much AI as in what they call matching engines, but it's matching engines on steroids. And when it's such a heavy... Um, how can one call it, almost a load of matching that mm -hmm. is coming together. It starts looking like AI, and then it starts designing your slides for you, for example. And then it um, starts coaching you in presenting your uh, talk and listening to you and giving you advice, not verbal advice, but um, analyzing your script and pointing out uh, where you can improve your script for example. So it's almost a one-stop shop of uh, teaching you how to put together a presentation and then to uh, deliver that presentation. Now with generative AI, it's gone further. But generative AI has been with us for quite a few years. It's just that it now has an open public web-based interface that anyone can use. So one of the things I also showed in the last few years was all the tools that speakers could use to generate content. Mm -hmm. And the point I always made was that this isn't to write your speech for you, but to help you through writer's block, to help you to generate ideas, and to help you edit and structure your speeches. But you always had to know a little bit about how to do it, where to go, uh, whether you should uh, subscribe to a paid version or free version, because most of those tools were subscription-based at that stage. Then came November the 30th, 2022, and the opening up of ChatGPT, and suddenly everything changed, but nothing had changed, actually. Mm. What really changed was that it was now suddenly available on the web at no cost to anyone, but at a, a, a tremendous level of ability or capability of what it could do, uh, do for you. And what you previously really had to understand how to do uh, online and where to do it and uh, what parameters to use, it now suddenly became open and easy. So that's what changed. It was the democratizing of uh, generative AI that changed. It wasn't the invention of ge uh, generative AI. Mm, because the, the invention uh, goes all the way back to Turing, doesn't it? it that this, it's, this is a long game. It's a very long game. I'm glad you used game because uh, Alan Turing in his seminal paper on AI spoke about what he called the imitation game. And the imitation game was computers being able to imitate uh, humans. And that's what we're seeing today. That became known or it, de it developed into what's called the Turing test, uh, which is a test that tells you whether um, computers or software uh, is able to pose as human and fool humans into thinking that it's human. That's essentially what it is. Um, and that's 73 years ago that you wrote that uh, paper. Wow. So yes, that's deeper. It's been a long, long time coming. <laughs> That's really incredible. Yeah, um, there, in many ways, there's nothing new under the sun, but it is interesting to see just how 
for um, different uh, platforms and offerings and applications have gone to actually pass the Turing test. Um, in a presentation of yours, you play audio recordings of phone calls where people make bookings on the phone and the AIs are actually programmed to do things like say um and ah and and so and so so they're very imperfect and the audience was fooled I I couldn't guess which one was which which one is a human yeah. which one is a bot that was a, a real fun one that was Google duplex and when it was first demonstrated um, they used two conversations. One was a call to a hairdresser and one was a call to a restaurant, both to make uh, bookings. And I play those to audiences and I ask them to guess which one is the human and which one is the AI in that conversation. And uh, you'd think that people would realize that if you're demonstrating a call, clearly um, the call being made is by a human, although you could demonstrate it by phoning an AI. However, uh, half the audience typically thinks that the person being called is the AI because people answering a phone at a lot of these establishments are often very robotic. <laughs> and what it highlights is the fact that AI actually can sound more human than a human. But uh, what's really interesting about that um, demonstration is I'd like you to guess how many years ago that took place. It was a while because I remember that one coming out and and it was before there was buzz around these things so much. Mid it was 2018, five, 2018, five years ago. Wow. In fact, wow. May 2018, so five and a half really? years ago. And mm. uh, people are shocked when they learn that that was already happening back then when they thought this was only just starting in 2023. Right. And it, what is really fascinating is now you speak about this, um, the, the real revolution that came when we all started hearing about ChatGPT at the end of uh, November uh, 2022 was the transparency of it. The fact that we were actually saying, well, here is generative AI, you are now dealing with a bot and we know it, whereas very often we don't actually know it. And with duplex, you even point out that it's been banned in many places just because of all the considerations. And we don't always know. There's That's us on the highway, you know, buckling up our seatbelt. Many states just say, you can't use Google duplex because of these uncertainties, risks, etc. Because Anybody who's used any kind of program like that has probably come across the point where artificial intelligence becomes remarkably stupid. And we don't always know. We need a human. Well, humans can also be remarkably stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, the truth is that this kind of AI can be misused as well. And that's a great concern in many jurisdictions. Mm. And uh, Google understood that, which is why they went in the USA on a state-by-state -state basis to get regulatory approval for using mm -hmm. uh, this in various uh, forms and uh, to also be able to sell it to enterprise customers to, for example, use it in call centers and the like. Um, so you're now venturing into the field of ethics in AI, and there's a very strong ethical viewpoint that one should never um, have a situation as a business or as an organization where your customers or your stakeholders are communicating with an AI without knowing that, mm. that it must always be 
um, revealed or stated um, or specified upfront that they will initially be dealing with a robot or an AI or an, a virtual assistant, whatever they want to call it, they mm. can call it something very friendly. Um, if they call it a robot, they might scare people off. Mm. But um, that's also the idea behind chatbots. They're called chatbots so that they can sound user-friendly. Mm. And uh, typically, uh, chatbots are very stupid. And the typical chatbot I've dealt with has tended to hand me over to a human being after about three um, interchanges of mm. uh, questions and answers because mm. the chatbot typically can only access a, a knowledge base and it can match your question via keywords to potential answers and that's a very blunt instrument mm. um, a, and, and that's a form of machine learning machine mm. learning is the algorithms I was talking about earlier where you have a scripted uh, process and in machine learning generally speaking it's fairly limited and uh, machine learning tends to underpin most chatbots. When you bring artificial intelligence into it, then you start introducing elements like natural language processing, which is essentially what's behind uh, ChatGPT and the like. You bring in large language models, which is actually the heart of ChatGPT. So it can actually match your question to a vast database of information as well as language and it can lead you to the uh, correct answer. I'm not just saying ChatGPT can lead you to the correct answer. It will probably give you a made-up answer. But if it's built into a corporate AI system, typically it will combine a large language model with that company's own um, base of information. And any facts or advice that it delivers comes out of the company's knowledge base uh, and experience base as well, and not out of some generic language model of the kind that the public chat platforms use. Mm. And, and this is very interesting to start seeing that the uh, different settings or um, I suppose you can put it in the prompts because we know with so much of generative AI, it's all about the prompt. But there are now options for having a more creative approach, a more balanced approach or a more accurate approach. But even then, still that human intervention is important. If you're enjoying learning from our guests, just imagine attending their presentations and meeting them in person. At the PSASA Convention 2024, you can do just that. The PSASA Convention is the biggest annual event hosted by the Professional Speakers Association of Southern Africa, the PSASA a membership body which exists to support the common needs of professional speakers. During its 17-year existence, the convention has been consistently attended by an enthusiastic audience, primarily based in South Africa. It has, however, over the years also become a popular event with international speakers looking to develop their African network. PSASA 2024 is the ideal opportunity to interact with peers and spend time with decision makers in a space where creativity, innovation and connection are at the forefront. Find the link to book your spot at the end of this episode and in the description. 
I think the best way to demonstrate that is to do like anybody talking to anybody about AI should do. And I asked ChatGPT what I should ask you. And here's what it came up with. <laughs> and I think this is a perfect demonstration of what the bot can and cannot do, why it still needs a pilot in the pilot seat. So I asked ChatGPT what the most important question is that I should ask an expert on AI for a podcast interview. I, I tweaked that um a little bit and it's it started going completely off the rails so we'll stay with a more generic prompt and it said the following very beautiful but completely vanilla question it said i should ask you what do you see as the most significant opportunities and challenges in the current state and future development of artificial intelligence so that's beautiful that's perfect it does not sound like me and so what i would rather say i would want to ask you Oh dear, I have managed to lose my question. I would say, what would you say are the biggest opportunities that the experts like speakers, authors, and thought leaders listening to this podcast should explore? And what are the biggest dangers to dodge? <laughs> I agree about the question. It is so vanilla, you almost fall asleep before you finish asking the question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um the, the, the true opportunity that is before us at the moment and that has been before us uh, this whole year has been um, the massive saving in time that we can achieve on several levels. Um, one is doing research for you. Mm -hmm. And there the proviso is always that you have to fact check anything that looks like a fact. But it's incredible what it can bring together that you would spend hours um, going onto the web searching for. So Google Bard, for example, which has access to the internet, can bring together information. So I'll give you an example. Um, my area of speaking is obviously high tech. Right now it's going to be all about AI, but there was a time when it was all about mobile phones, for example. Oh. After I wrote, there's a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Going Mobile which no one bought because everyone knows how to use a smartphone. But if I gave a talk to a corporate audience about the mobile trend, which was my most uh, common talk that I gave, um, among other things, I would want to show them the evolution of the cell phone over the years. And I'd have to do a lot of desk research to find uh, exactly when each uh, shift happened, for example, in screen size. Um, in processor speed, in memory. Now I go to Google Bard or um, Microsoft uh, Bing AI, now Bing Copilot, and I ask it to please give me a chart of the increase in average screen size, or at least to give me the average screen size per year from 2011 to 2022. And it does that in two seconds. It would have taken me two hours to do that. That's just my personal example. Is um, Every speaker would have those kind of examples. I have a friend who speaks on climate change, um, and I'm sure she has at her fingertips many of the stats about climate change. But if she doesn't, and she needs to check what is the average temperature on Earth every year from 1980 to today, she'd probably spend a week researching that. Now, uh, ChatGPT, not so not ChatGPT, but Google Bard or um, Bing AI would do that for uh, in less than a minute. That is a phenomenal superpower to suddenly have at your disposal. But then, that's just the beginning. That's the background. Then, 
um, when you want to start formulating your talk and you're not quite sure how to structure it, you uh -huh. can ask all of those platforms as well as ChatGPT to take the information that you have here and tell you how best to structure it to keep an audience engaged. Each one of them will give you a different answer, which is why it's a good idea to try all of them and to take the best suggestions from each of them. So you're not getting them to tell you what to do. You ask them to guide you in what you should take into account in deciding what to do. And then from there, you can ask it um, what one of the things I like to ask is uh, what have I left out of this list or out of this structure? Um, for example, when I wrote my book, I gave it my chapter structure and I said, what's missing from here? Mm. And um, uh, ChatGPT actually gave me a very silly um, response at the time, which highlighted for me how you can't rely on it to uh, be inclusive. But once I refined my prompt, it actually highlighted a couple of areas. Google Bard highlighted a couple of interesting areas. Then for each of those where I didn't fully understand what they were saying, I asked them to please give me a definition or to point me to further resources. In the case of Bing and Google Bard, especially, they can point you to additional online uh, resources. And if I then found material that I didn't quite understand or it was technical, I would punch it into any of those platforms and ask it to please explain this in layman's terms. And all of those are elements that go into uh, putting together the framework structure and basic content of your talk. That's mm. not your talk, of course. Mm. That's where mm. your creative genius comes in. That's where you start um, adding your flashes of insight, which AI can never give you. You start adding your humor, which AI can't give you. Ask AI to be funny. Oh, and it is agonizing. Oh, it's worse oh. than dad jokes. Always. <laughs> <laughs> and I've told a few dad jokes. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, um, you then overlay your creativity, your insight, and your unique personality over what AI has prepared for you. But that's the key word. Let AI prepare the ground for you, and you then build your structure on that. Uh, ground but it can save so much time if you have to do something from scratch the amount of time it saves is phenomenal and i'd say that that's probably the most underappreciated benefit of ai is time that is uh, very very well put and of course this applies to speakers as you've illustrated so well it also applies to authors and i think in this connection it would be unfair to our listeners not to mention your co-author Merlin the Worried Cat. <laughs> so where's Merlin? Merlin <laughs> was here earlier. So um, earlier this year, we got a new rescue cat, a kitten by the name of Merlin, that always looked worried. So I asked ChatGPT, what would make a cat worried? And it came up with a charming set of reasons. So I said, um, write a book about what would make a cat worried and it gave me a couple of very short chapters so then i started prompting it i got it to expand i asked it what else would make a cat worried and the end was a, a mini book that i then published on amazon kindle uh, called um uh, things that make a kitten worried i think right. and the author is berlin the worried kitten 
but uh, I get a I get a credit uh, somewhere as the co-author um, of the book because uh, I can claim that the prompts were mine. But um, then it, then it uh, so it's available for free on Amazon Kindle because my idea wasn't to try and make money or to sell it; it was just to demonstrate, demonstrate what one could. Do. But then I thought, let me take it a step further and show how you can do something that actually is outside of your not your even your comfort zone but your ability zone mm -hmm. i can't code uh, i've always wanted to learn to code but i've realized that um my forte is knowing what you can do with code and with computers and and the like but yeah. coding yourself i can't do i thought let me see if i can produce a book about a topic that i know nothing about um but I wanted to do it as part of that experiment with Merlin. And I got ChatGPT to suggest the framework of a guide to coding in Python, which is one of the most popular coding languages, one of the most useful coding languages um, out there. And I know what Python looks like. So I can identify Python uh, code. I just can't uh, do it. So it uh, gave me um, some options. And then I said, okay, give, write a basic guide on coding in Python from the viewpoint of a worried cat called Merlin. And then it started producing that. Now I kept prompting it for additional chapters. I said, what else can you do? One of the things, and it's essentially it was looking at uh, learning to code in Python, but with practical examples that related to being a cat owner. Mm. So very useful for cat Ooh, owners, smart. very useful to learn. Uh, python as well and eventually produced the book which i had someone look at to make sure um the coding advice was correct mm. and they could find no fault whatsoever uh, with that so that's an example of where chat gpt is really good at existing at, at organizing existing knowledge and uh, putting it into a perspective that you request and i then published that also as a book on amazon kindle so merlin has two books on amazon kindle but the weird thing is, even after writing those two books, I didn't think about writing a book myself about AI. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to show people what you can do with AI, what it makes possible. And okay. for me, it was a, the second one was a fantastic example of what AI makes possible in terms of enabling one to write about things you don't know about. But that can be very dangerous, of course, because um, if you uh, trust the output blindly, uh, you can find yourself in deep trouble. Mm. And once again, that's back to fastening our seatbelt. So dodging those dangers that, that actually leads so well into it. Um, Arthur, I, I assume uh, you have Merlin's permission. <laughs> and, uh, he seemed like a very willing accomplice. But uh, when it comes to things like being sure that our facts are correct, and then also even the emerging matter of ethics and copyright even, um, there are risks. What what are the basics that people need to know about being sure that you're covered when you are using artificial intelligence, especially generative artificial intelligence? The first basic rule is that these are what they call language models. In other words, they are trained on large databases of language. They are not fact models. They're not trained on databases of facts, and they're not trained to uh, identify um, facts that are accurate and those that are not. 
And because they're trained on language, they're taking the average of how language is used. That's why it's often so bland and boring, is mm -hmm. that it averages out the language um, th that it finds. And you've got to then prompt it to refine that language and turn it into something slightly more sparkling through forcing it to focus on specific requirements that you have. But its overall approach is essentially, I won't say dumbing down, um, but almost going for the lowest common denominator of language. So when it comes to facts, if it's a fact that is generally accepted and is generally proven and is widely used and quoted, it will probably have a correct fact. If it's a fact that is very hard to find, chances are it's going to match that required information to related information that's not necessarily um, factual to your specific question. I'll go back to my cell phone example. If I ask it to, uh, if I ask ChatGPT to review uh, the new Samsung or Apple or Huawei phone, for example, it doesn't have that um, material in its knowledge base because it's um, it was uh, last updated in, I think, 2021 in terms of what's publicly accessible. So it doesn't want to disappoint you. So it's going to produce some output and it will come up with the nearest information to what you're asking and it will present that as fact. Mm. So it will, it will give you a hypothetical picture of what each of those devices looks like or what its features are. And it will be entirely wrong because it mm. actually doesn't know. Mm. Um, on the other hand, if you ask it for information about a topic around which is, there is a lot of conspiracy theory, the and that conspiracy Earth. theory <laughs> is, is widely accepted and widely reported, there's a good chance that it'll come up with conspiracy theory as fact because it's averaging out information. And mm -hmm. if there's more information that um, confirms a conspiracy theory than information that debunks it, it may well come out on the side of the conspiracy theory Ooh. even though any uh, critically thinking person can see that it's false mm. well again that leads into the, the real art is critical thinking really being able to understand what is happening there and and that means that the real intelligence still lies with us and we have a responsibility especially in our own work but also in education to make sure that people understand what they're dealing with and that they can be transparent and open about this that is such a great insight and of course there's oodles more where that came from in your book Arthur would you tell us a bit about the Hitchhiker's Guide to AI a handbook for all and its upcoming launch the book is about a journey it is also a guide to AI specifically but it also takes readers on my journey into the discovery of uh, AI or exploration of AI and I take them around the world to some fascinating examples of AI in action. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite examples, for, uh, for instance, was um, in uh, 2018 or 2019, um, I met with a team from Oracle uh, Software in South Africa, and we were chatting about AI and uh, all the kinds of things that were happening around it. And one of the guys who was the head of public relations for uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa told me about a, a project in Reading where they have their 
I think it's their European headquarters. Uh, they've got a massive campus there. And there was a little AI project that would interest me. And uh, I'll keep you in suspense. But <laughs> they, um, <laughs> that Read the book. my interest. <laughs> <laughs> I I, just, I said to them, I have to visit it. I have to go there. And next time they had an event in um, the UK where they were inviting media, um, they invited me along to that event so that I could make a detour to their uh, Reading campus. And there on their Reading campus, I discovered a beehive. And the beehive was connected to sensors. It was connected uh, to uh, computers to what they call the Internet of Things, and also to a vast global database of knowledge about bees, patterns of bees' movements, the sounds that bees make, and the like. And what this really was is they were using AI to interpret the language of bees through their movements, their sounds, um, and their behavior, of which there was a vast database available globally, but all being brought together using um, the cloud, cloud computing, and um, uh, IoT, the Internet of Things, and artificial intelligence. And this, to me, was, at the time, one of the greatest case studies I'd yet found. Because mm -hmm. imagine, if you can interpret the language of bees, that's just a short step to interpreting the language of almost any animal. So mm -hmm. that truly excited me, and it gave me a, a very powerful sense of the potential um, of AI. So th that's that's one of the stories I tell uh, in the book. I go into, into great detail also about how it works, but also what its significance is, not just um, in terms of protecting bee populations, which is a very big part of the project, but also what companies can learn from how uh, the AI is being used, how it's accessing databases of information, what they call data lakes and pulling out relevant information, matching it to environmental information um, and the like. So um, a, a case study with applications in many different directions, but also learnings in many different directions. So um, that, that was, uh, I think it was around March or April uh, 2019. And um, not uh, long uh, before that, I found myself in Barcelona at the Mobile World Congress, where all the new smartphones used to be launched, and uh, they used to highlight the, um, the the latest technologies that would enable smartphones, would enable consumers and enterprises to make best use of technology uh, and the like. And while I was there, I received an invitation to attend a press conference at the local stadium. Now, any soccer fan is watching probably thinks, hey, Barcelona. Uh, the Camp Nou or the New Camp Stadium. No, it wasn't. It was the second team in Barcelona, uh, Espanyol, that uh, keeps being relegated, coming back to the Spanish La Liga. And at their stadium, they were having a press conference to demonstrate how La Liga was using technology to enhance the experience of football by fans, by coaches, by management, and by players. And it was a fascinating experience. They also happened to have a more modern stadium, or they had a more modern, modern stadium than Barcelona FC, which is currently renovating its stadium because it was so old-fashioned. Espanyol had this cool modern stadium where they could demonstrate the use of these technologies. 
And one of them was a, a, a cloud uh, predictor, uh, which would show when, not, uh, when the shade would come over the, uh, the field and change the ability of TV cameras to capture what is happening on the field. And that would enable them to schedule games to ensure that the uh, TV cameras could capture the game to its uh, best advantage, and therefore the viewer at home could experience it to its best advantage. They built uh, traffic patterns into their databases so that they could work out which were the worst times and the best times to have games that would have uh, least disruption of traffic or least disruption from traffic as well. Mm. All those kind of things. That was just uh, in terms of the experience of the fans. Then they brought it to, down to what happens on the field and being able to create create heat maps showing uh, the player's movement and activity and um, accuracy of ball passes. And among other things, um, it can give you a measure of which players have uh, been running the most and therefore likely to be the most fatigued, which can then help the manager decide um, on substitutions, for example. Wow. So all of that, there's there's a lot more detail I could go into, but there was one fascinating statistic that uh, I then um, looked up to see if, if, if this meant anything. And that statistic was that between, I think it was uh, 2011 and uh, 2020 or uh, 2019, um, Spanish clubs um, occupied almost double the amount of positions in the last four of the major European club uh, tournaments um, than the, the, the second best country, which was England. So England has the um, perception of being the top footballing country in the world. But in the 2010s, it was Spain. And the point I make in the book is that um, AI doesn't enable them to win games. It doesn't enable them to win tournaments, but it gives them a slight edge. There's no question. And if a game is absolutely even, if two teams are absolutely even, and one has a slight edge, there's a good chance it's going to win. So that edge, I believe, is what gave Spain the ability to have twice as many teams in the last four of these tournaments as England. Now, however, the tables have turned. Why? Because everyone has access to the same technology. Right. So right. If you embrace AI early, it's a differentiator. If you're mm -hmm. catching up while everyone is uh, catching up, there's no differentiation whatsoever. It's just a ticket to the game. It allows you to keep up rather than get ahead. Uh, that is the perfect conclusion to our conversation. Arthur Goldstuck, it's been such a fantastic pleasure having you on the League of Visionaries podcast. And we're going to be seeing you at the PSASA convention 2024, where you'll be speaking about future-focused art and science for the speaking profession. Um, we want all speakers to be bringing along their copies of the Hitchhiker's, Gu Hitchhiker's Guide to AI so that you can sign it when you're there. And um, we're looking forward so much to what you have to share with us there. I hope to see you all there. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> for sure. And of course, then there's the uh, the launch for the uh, for the book coming up as well. So keep an eye on that. We've got all the links to your work and, of course, to the book so that people can get the book even in advance when this episode goes live. But it will be available at all the good retailers. It's all over the Internet and it's definitely going to be a game changer for every reader. Arthur, thank you so very much. Thanks so much, Marie. You've been listening to the League of Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Yazi Media Virtual Media House. Yazi Media is a proud media partner to the PSASA Convention 2024. All the guests on this season of the podcast will be speaking at this premier event for speakers. Book your spot at the PSASA Convention 2024 on the PSASA website at www.psasouthernafrica.co.za